You're listening to episode 14 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to episode 14 of Chat About Children, where we chat about all things children and support and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is all about ears, hearing and tonsils. These are areas that can be super problematic for children and really can have quite a significant impact on a child's development sometimes. I do chat to an ear, nose and throat specialist and we cover some interesting topics. We look at common issues that affect ears, hearing and tonsils and we also give you a heads up on what to look out for. What are the signs and the symptoms that you need to be aware of? And generally, I find just so much super valuable information in this episode that you're just going to get an absolute boost in your own awareness and knowledge of these areas that are going to help you at home or in your workplace with children. So let's start the chat. Joining me today is Dr. Justine Miller. She's a trained and accredited ear, nose and throat specialist in Australia, and she's also a lecturer at the University of New South Wales. She specializes in the management of both pediatric and adult ear, nose and throat disorders, and she has an absolute passion for providing superior health outcomes for all her patients. Dr. Miller does have a particular interest in pediatric enos and throat disorders, and she does work extensively with children and their families, and she's also a mother of three herself. Her other interests include snoring, sleep apnea, allergy, sinus disease, laryngology, and voice disorders. Dr. Miller is also a published author on world-leading ear, nose, and throat surgery, and she has presented at a number of national and international medical conferences. Currently, she works at Sutherland Public Hospital, St. George Public Hospital and Carina Private Hospital in Sydney, Australia. A very busy lady. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Justine Miller. Thank you for having me today, Sonia. It's very exciting. We're talking about a topic that you're obviously passionate about, but I'm also very passionate about not only as a speech pathologist, but as a mother. And that's simply because ears, hearing and tonsils and even adenoids Uh, areas that can be super problematic in children. So I think today we're going to be really covering a lot of very frequently asked questions that parents and professionals have about those areas. But before we delve into that, can you tell me a little bit about you, Justine, and what made you want to specialize as an ear, nose and throat surgeon to start with? I suppose the first, when I first sort of decided to become an ENT surgeon was in my final year of medical school, doing a term in ENT at well, Prince Alfred Hospital. And it was really my mentors and the other ENT surgeons, it was such a really, were genuinely nice and normal people and lovely. So they really made me feel at home. I loved um, the time that I spent with them and that was really sort of the key to becoming an ENT surgeon was that time. But then also... I really love the fact that with ENT surgery, we're sort of really improving patients' quality of life by improving their ability to communicate with the um, world. So through improving patients' hearing, um, voice, and their sense of taste and smell. So really, we're dealing with senses and improving senses really a huge factor in terms of quality of life. So for me, um, that was really one of the main things. The other thing with ENT surgery is that it's not just, uh, we're not just surgeons of the ear, nose and throat, we're also physicians. And so it's sort of really whole rounded approach to this area. 
And there is um, lots of paediatrics as well, which I've enjoyed. So I think for me, it's been sort of a long journey, but really from being a medical student was when I first made that decision. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of variety in what you do as well, which would keep you quite interested, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's, yeah, we do a lot of different sort of things from cleaning out your wax to voice disorders and, <laughs> um, and dealing with the snoring. So, look, it's, it's huge variety. We get to work with lots of other teams. So, we work with neurosurgeons and plastic surgeons and speech therapists, and, which is really um, really exciting. Yeah, fantastic. So children do make up a large part of your caseload in your day-to-day? Yes, yeah. I'll probably see about, yeah, I'd say like 80% of my patient load is paediatrics. I love paediatrics. I've got kids of my own and I love dealing with families and kids. Yeah, fantastic. So what are the most common issues that children present with in your day? Recurrent ear infections is probably one of the most common ones. Yeah, little yeah. ear, um, recurrent tonsillitis, sleep disordered breathing, allergic rhinitis, epistaxis, which is bleeding from the nose, mm. um, with foreign bodies in their ears and, and noses, patients with recurrent croup um, and patients with dysphonia, which is voice disorders, and um, things like laryngomalacia and stridor and things like that as well. But they're sort of the common things that I see in sort of day-to-day practice. Yes. And one of the things we're focusing on today is, is very much about the ears and the hearing and the tonsils. So if we have a look at, you mentioned middle ear infections as one of the, the big areas and you mentioned glue ear. Can you explain what glue ear is to our listeners? Yeah, so basically the ear is made up of three parts. So you have the external auditory canal, which is separated um, to the middle ear compartment um, with the eardrum. And then we've got the inner ear, which involves the cochlea and the nerve going back up to the brain. And essentially glue ear is a condition that affects the middle ear compartment, which is the compartment where the little ossicles, which are the bones of hearing, sort of go through. Um, And it's connected through this thing called the eustachian tube to the back of the nose. So patients that get glue ear, basically it's fluid within that middle ear space and that's persistent, that doesn't clear. Now, there are a number of different reasons why people get fluid in the ear and typically it can be related to having ear infections and then as a result of just a biofilm within that area or sticky eustachian tubes, it just doesn't clear properly. Essentially, the eustachian tubes are vital in stopping glue ear. So every time you swallow or you eat or you yawn, you open up the eustachian tube, which allows fluid to drain out from the middle ear space into the back of the nose and allows air to go from the back of the nose into the middle ear space. If the eustachian tube becomes sticky or doesn't open, then you're not able to allow the air to come in and you don't drain the fluid out. And so the middle ear space is actually lined with a whole lot of glands and so that produces mucus naturally all the time. So that mucus builds up as well as the oxygen in that middle ear space is getting absorbed by the tissue. So you actually end up getting a negative pressure within the middle ear space and you get mucus building up in it. And the reason why it's called glue ear is because when we actually try and suck it out of the ear, it literally looks like glue. It's this thick sticky gelatinous type stuff Mm. and the issue having glue ear is it causes problems with patients hearing because it dampens down that vibration from the eardrum to the to the inner ear through the ossicles and when that happens they get a conductive hearing loss so they get a loss in the hearing going into the cochlea 
Yes. And then that obviously has that effect of affecting the communication or language development. And, and that's why as speech pathologists, we will always get their ears and hearing checked before we really delve into any intervention. And that's just an absolute you know, prerequisite for us. Now, what age range? Obviously, middle ear infections are, are very common in, in your young kids. What age range does it more commonly affect? Yeah, typically in kids under seven, by the time kids get to seven years of age, they are their position of the eustachian tube is more like an adult, so it sits in a more vertical position. Under seven, it sits in a more horizontal position, and so it's less likely to clear as well. But that doesn't seem to be the only factor in causing glue ear because we know that all kids have a more horizontal eustachian tube, but not all kids get glue ear. And so there's a whole lot of other factors that seem to affect it, including allergies. So kids that have allergies, kids that have very large adenoid tissue or adenoid tissue that's, uh, that has a, sort of a biofilm covering it and other factors, so genetic factors, facial sort of structure, you know, if their parents have had issues with their ears, often the kids do as well. Um, and then there's other factors like environmental smoke exposure, um, and dummy sucking, um, but breastfeeding over the bottle feeding has been shown to be protective in terms of getting ear infections, feeding child lying down, that sort of stuff. Um, there is also evidence that kids that attend daycare and swimming lessons are more likely to have middle ear issues. Yes, because swimming is a big one that I know a lot of parents worry about you know, doing swimming lessons because they go, you know, the pool is just a breeding ground for middle ear infections. So is there some truth to that then? Look, um, I mean, it's really important in Australia for kids to, you know, do swimming lessons for yeah. safety, water safety, because we're in a, you know, we're a culture that spends a lot of time in the water. So it is important. So we shouldn't just take our kids out of swimming lessons. But there is some truth in that the warm environment of an indoor pool can breed bacteria. Now, it tends to be, so wearing earplugs and things like that does not help in terms of getting ear infections because it's the middle ear. So the middle ear is actually protected from the outside world by the eardrum. Mm -hmm. So it's really about water, you know, water and, and the warm sort of humid air in the indoor swimming pool and uh, other, you know, sick kids in the area. It's sort of similar to exposure when you go to daycare because it's just a crowded sort of environment with lots of kids with lots of, you know, germs yeah. essentially. So it's, it's more environmental. It's more, yeah. But, you know, actually getting the ears wet in the water is unlikely to cause any issues. It's more about getting sort of germs up the nose, so exposure to respiratory tract infections, mm. in, if that makes sense. So is there any practical that parents can do to help in that swimming lesson environment or is it you just hope for the best? <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot, to be honest. Um, like earplugs, absolutely not helpful. I mean, it's really about, and, you know, the evidence of the kids getting cold and that sort of stuff is very, there's very little evidence to suggest that that's an issue. I mean, it's just more exposure with lots of other kids with bringing in viruses and bacteria into the area that's more likely to cause a problem. Yes. So I guess the message is if your child's unwell, keep them at home. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fair point. So what would be some of the signs and symptoms that something's not quite right with a child's ears, I guess, if they potentially have a middle ear infection, they can be quite painful. I know this from personal experience. What are some signs and symptoms apart from 
pain that we might need to look out for as parents and professionals? So in terms of ear infections mm. or in hearing loss, so in terms of ear infections, fever is a big one and if they're complaining so they're pulling at their ears they're irritable sometimes kids can vomit and have diarrhea when they have a bad ear infection and if they've got a perforation you'll see gum coming out of the ear Mm. and there's signs to take them to the gp to have a look at the eardrum to see whether or not it's bulging and it's red and if they've got the combination of a fever ear pain and bulging eardrum then they need to then it's almost certain that they've got an ear infection Yes. Okay. Excellent. So there's some symptoms to be aware of. So now let's look at hearing. So we've got, as we mentioned before, ear infections can cause kind of compromise in a child's hearing. And how would we know if hearing is affected? And it could be that they don't have a middle ear infection, but there are hearing issues. How do we know if there is a hearing issue at all? Really, it's about development. So If you think that there's something not quite right with your child's hearing, then you're usually right. So I always go from parents' sort of gut feel. If they think something's wrong, they're probably right. But really it's about between one and three months we expect the child to be crying and cooing. Mm -hmm. Between four and six months we expect them to sigh, grunt, gurgle, squeal, laugh and interact. And between six and nine months we really want the baby to start babbling syllables and start sort of... um, initiating tones of speech Um, and by 12 months we want them to start talking sort of say a few words Um, by 18 we want 50 words but so 18 months to two years we want about 50 words and then by two to three years we really want them to do sort of four to five word sentences Um, and so if there's delay in that then we can the hearing should be rechecked Um, between yeah so essentially by the time a child is five they should have sort of 2500 words um so um and really be constructing complete grammatical sentences so that's sort of it's really about what age you know if they've got abnormalities with with that and and um, there's delay then it needs to be investigated for further so I think what I usually say to parents is worry if by 12 months your child is not trying to communicate with you so um, using gestures and sounds um, is really important and worry if by two your child um, has not started to combine the words so not started to put words together Um, yes in in New South Wales, all kids are screened for hearing loss with a newborn swish um, a hearing test. Um, and so most children, um, if they've got a congenital hearing loss, should be picked up at birth in New South Wales. Um, and this is about 6%. So it's pretty pretty good in terms of picking up most things. Um, in terms of um, uh, developing hearing loss, the most common reason why kids develop hearing loss is related to ear infections and glue ear. So that's really something that is completely curable um, and um, really important because if a child's not hearing adequately, then it will delay their speech because they need that input in order to be able to um, start making those noises and sounds. Yeah, um, yeah. So really, yeah, so in terms of worrying, um, it's really about what are they doing at 12 months, what are they doing at two years um, for me in terms of what I tell my patients. Yeah, absolutely. And that that strongly links to, and you've talked a lot about communication development, and that strongly links to what, what we do as speech pathologists and making sure the ears and the hearing are checked. Um, now, I know that it can be a challenge sometimes 
um, for professionals and even for educators, you know, that work with children when they might encourage parents to, hey, you know, please get your child's hearing tested or their ears looked at because they want to kind of start that process of understanding what might be causing, you know, a communication delay. And Mm -hmm. I find from talking to a lot of professionals that very often they can have parents say, oh, my child hears me fine. They can hear me better than, you know, they can hear better than me. Um, And it can be a real obstacle to get those ears and the hearing looked at. Is there any kind of something else that that you would say to professionals, look, maybe say this or or pitch it in this way to just get parents to take that step? Because I imagine there are children that can have even just too much earwax in there and that's compromising their hearing or something simple like that, but Mm. ear infections that, I don't know, one day than the other like what are your what's your advice so I mean I think the thing to to tell parents is really um so the child may still respond to sound and that doesn't mean that they're hearing they've got adequate hearing because when you've got glue ear you can still hear it's similar to when you're in a pool and someone's talking to you and you kind of you can hear what they're saying but it's muffled and so in an adult you know it's sort of muffled and you struggle a little bit to hear but in a child if that's the sound that they're getting in it really affects the way the brain then starts to um analyze that sound and then for their speech and language development and often kids with issues with their hearing it's not that they don't respond to sound but it's more that they're not hearing the sound clearly. And so I think for if if you're having some resistance with the parents and they think, you know, actually, no, my child's fine, then it's more about, you know, the really the critical time for speech and language development is early. And if you miss that, then they need a whole lot more help later to try and get their speech up. And so they, they it takes a lot more time later on when it may be something very simple in correcting the hearing. And often kids that have a hearing loss, they leave the ends of words off. So that's sort of the first sign that there's an issue. So if they're sort of partially, you know, they leave the, the ends of their words off, then you think, yeah, it's definitely hearing loss. Excellent. Great advice. Great advice. So with children that get recurrent, frequent ear infections, a way, a very common way to manage them is with what we call grommets. And I know for two out of three of my children, one of them had to have grommets twice and the other had grommets once. So can you explain just briefly what grommets are and what they do? Yeah. And so our listeners have an awareness of that. Okay. So grommets are tiny little plastic tubes that sit in the eardrum. So essentially, there are lots of different types of grommets, but they're designed to be temporary because if they stay in too long, they can leave a little hole in the eardrum. So that's why we prefer to sort of do a second set of grommets rather than leave one set in for too long. But basically, they're they're put in by making a tiny little cut in the eardrum. It's all done under a general anaesthetic so that the child's still enough. We can't do it under a local anaesthetic. Even in adults, it can be quite challenging to do so it's done under general they usually it's day surgery so they come in on the day of surgery and go home the same day and in terms of the anesthetic the parents come into the operating theater until the child's asleep the child will get some sort of happy gas and a combination of anesthetic gas to put them to sleep and then as soon as the child's waking up from the anesthetic the parents will be with the child so they're not sort of where the parents not with them in terms of the actual procedure essentially it's done under a microscope and we make a tiny little cut in the eardrum we suck out all of that fluid out of 
the middle ear space and we pop this tiny little tube in. Now this tube is tiny, it's the size of the end of a pen and it sits in there between 6 and 12 months and then the child's body will naturally push it out. So it will get it will sort of grow out of the ear canal and the parents may not even notice the grommet coming out. As a general rule, as a first set of grommets, we tend to put in a grommet that stays in for less time. When we, If we have to put a second set of grommets in, which can happen up to 30% of the time, we tend to put a grommet in that stays in a little bit longer. And the reason for trying to use a temporary one is because we don't want to leave a little hole in the eardrum the evidence why don't we just make a cut in the eardrum suck the glue out and then just leave it without putting grommet in the reason the evidence is that if you do that the fluid just reaccumulates so we actually need the grommet in the ear to stabilize the ear often and what we we're talking about earlier in terms of glue ear you get negative pressure in the ear and so the eardrum, instead of being a nice tight drum, like something that you would play on, becomes a floppy sort of black glad wrap kind of tissue. Um, and so when the grommet goes in, eventually over time, and that can be a few days to a few weeks, the eardrum stiffens up again. And so that stiffening up and the stabilisation of the middle ear space allows the ear to sort of heal and go back to a normal ear. And when the grommet grows out, then usually the ear is sort of stabilised and we don't need another set. But in some kids that have ongoing issues with allergies and adenoids and things like that, they can need another set. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And that's a lovely way to explain the sequence of what happens because often, you know, there can be some anxiety, I guess, from parents about have the child have a procedure, etc. But certainly the benefits, amazing and fantastic. And what I see as a speech pathologist is children that do have some delays in their communication, once they have those grommets inserted, we just see their communication development and their progress just skyrockets. It is amazing to see how much things positively change after grommet insertion. Have you seen the same? Yeah, absolutely. And it can be sort of overnight, you know, they go in and then the parents say, my goodness, like they're complaining that everything's too loud and, um, you know, (laughs) going to birthday parties they're really struggling but that stabilizes so sometimes after you put the grommets in because the kids have had such a long period where they're not hearing all of a sudden they can hear again it can be a little bit confronting for them but it settles down after a week or two but yeah it does make a huge difference and it depends on the child so if a child has not been hearing for that critical time in their speech and language development then putting the grommets in will make a big difference but they may still need speech therapy whereas some kids if it's sort of at the time where they have it you know you put the grommets in and actually their speech picks up dramatically and they don't really need any further assistance so it just depends on when you sort of catch it and the earlier obviously the better yeah absolutely absolutely and as speech pathologists we certainly advise families on all of that through our assessments and determining where they're at and what their needs are but it is really lovely to see their response being so positive and and just so much more responsive basically so if we move on to you've mentioned adenoids a couple of times we've mentioned tonsils can you talk to us a little bit about tonsils because we wonder you know or I know but can you tell our listeners what do they do and when can they become a problem for a child yeah so tonsils and adenoids are part of the immune tissue so what they do basically when you're born you have a small 
amount of immune tissue and it's actually covering the whole upper aerodigestive tract so the whole back of the nose back of the throat a base of tongue and essentially the tonsils there are three lots of tonsils so there are the adenoids which are the nasopharyngeal tonsils there are the tonsils that we classically call tonsils which are the palatine tonsils and then there's tonsils in the base of the tongue called the lingual tonsils so Adenoids are really just a clump of immune tissue that filter viruses and bacteria as they're coming in through the body and they're coming in through the nose. The tonsils in the back of the throat filter viruses and bacteria as they're coming in through the mouth. And so essentially what they then do is present those viruses and bacteria to the immune system and then the immune system fights them. So they do have a role in terms of their immune our sort of first line of immune response. The issue becomes when adenoids and tonsils are being exposed to viruses and bacteria, sometimes they can actually become colonised with viruses and bacteria themselves. And then it becomes this sort of war zone between the body's immune system and the bacteria and viruses living within the tonsils and adenoids. And when that happens, they grow in response and you get this thing called adenotonsillar hypertrophy, which is basically just enlargement of the tissue. And that can be problematic for a number of different reasons. In terms of the adenoids, the adenoids can seed bacteria up through the eustachian tube into the middle ear space and cause recurrent ear infections. So uh, really in terms of when we put grommets in, we always check to see whether or not the adenoids are enlarged and if they are, we often remove them at the same time. And the reason for that is the evidence is it reduces the risk that child will need another set of grommets by taking out that source of infection. Okay. Yeah, so when does it become a problem? Yes. So in terms speech so if a child has really big adenoids you'll notice that they get this sort of hyper like hypernasal voice so it's really that blocked nose sort of resonance so I don't know if you've ever noticed when a child sort of really find that they have these sort of resonance issues where you can't it affects their intelligibility sometimes so when they're how easily they're understood sorry Justine intelligibility is how easily a child <laughs> is understood just for yeah. those wondering what is that yeah. <laughs> And the thing with the tonsils when they're really big, apart from affecting their sleep, which is a whole different topic, but in terms of their speech, if the tonsils are really large, sometimes the tonsils can actually cause issues with the palate. So they can cause hypernasality because they nestle between the soft palate and the back of the throat and they actually cause a gap there where the palate can't meet the back of the throat. And so for kids that have issues with it with the sounds sort of the ng sounds at the back of the throat that can be related to having large tonsils and the other thing that large tonsils can cause is that sort of hot potato voice where air gets trapped in the back of the throat and they sound like it's a sort of a muffled sound to the voice yeah i don't know if you've noticed that as well so really i suppose yeah so the tongue fronting pattern and you can explain this a bit better than me because it's sort of yeah. speech yeah, yeah, yeah. basically what happens is that the tonsils if they're really big can cause issues because the palate can't meet the back of the throat and if the adenoids are really big then they get a really blocked nose sound which makes them difficult to understand so that's how they can affect speech when you take out the tonsils and adenoids it will change the way the child's voice sounds a little bit, but usually that stabilises and settles down. But if they've had really big adenoids and tonsils, the speech isn't sort of immediately changed. It will still require ongoing speech therapy to try and help with those sounds because they're quite difficult sounds to get stand in terms of their development. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. right? 
Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and it's just retraining basically the coordination of, of everything to get the, the accuracy of those sounds. So the tonsils and the adenoids certainly do a, can affect speech sound clarity and speech sound development. I think you mentioned earlier sleep issues, and I know that's a whole other gamut of discussion, but if tonsils are too big, they can affect sleep, or if adenoids are too big, just tell us about whether that could be a sign or a symptom that there are issues with tonsils or adenoids in children. Yeah, absolutely. So the things that we look out for with sleep disordered breathing, and there's a whole sort of range of different degrees of disorder. So anything from simple snoring to severe sleep apnea. And essentially what it is, is that when you're asleep, you paralyze your body to try not to act out your dreams. So you relax all the muscles and that relaxes the muscles in the back of the throat. And so when you relax the muscles and you've got big bulky tissue in the way with big tonsils and big that can obstruct the airway, which means that the child is then struggling to get airflow into the lungs at night and it can get to a point where the oxygen levels drop and then they wake themselves up as a reaction to try and get better oxygen to their brain. And so the things that we look out for in kids that have sleep disordered breathing are snoring, a child that sleeps with their mouth open and neck extended, if they're still wetting the bed so they're not toilet trained at night because when we go into deep sleep, we produce the hormone that helps reabsorption in the kidney. And if we're not sort of getting into that deep sleep, we then end up weighing all night and that's how kids wet the bed. Wettiness, because they're working really hard just to get airflow into their chest, they get sweaty at night. They tend to be low weight, so because they're working hard just to get airflow through, they get irritable during the day. So adults get really tired during the day, but kids actually can become a bit hyperactive and irritable as a result of lack of sleep. And difficulty concentrating is a classic sign, so they can't sit still, they can't sit down and concentrate and, and work, do you know, read or things like that because they're just um, not getting that adequate sleep. So what have we said? So we said <laughs> quite, um, so quite a bit. Yes. Snoring, neck extended, open mouth breathing, wetting the bed, irritability during the day. And the last thing is the apneas. So we're actually looking for the child that stops breathing. So mm-hmm. in an adult, we stop breathing for up to five times an hour and that's normal whereas in a child that's abnormal so even one apnea is an abnormal event and so an apnea is where they stop breathing and then they have a big sort of breath afterwards to try and get that airflow through and usually if it's more than 10 seconds and that's significantly abnormal Yes, yes. And sleep is, that's really helpful to to give some of those, I guess, initial symptoms or signs to be aware of. And as I mentioned earlier, it is a topic in itself. We've actually got a sleep specialist that I've recorded a whole episode for and that's coming up. So that topic will get delved into even more deeply. And I think it's really important that it's come up in this episode just to raise that initial awareness to to those symptoms because it is so, it's such a critical thing to be aware of and to be mindful of. So that's fantastic. Fantastic. So in kids that have sleep disorder breathing, 90% of them are cured by taking their tonsils and adenoids out. So it does, it's really in kids, if they've got sleep disorder breathing, it's because they've got big tonsils and adenoids. Yeah, perfect. And I imagine you'd do that procedure of taking tonsils out very frequently. For kids with obstructive sleep or yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, so the other reason why we take out tonsils is if kids are getting lots of tonsillitis. So if they're getting sort of multiple episodes, it's lots of antibiotics significantly impacting them, then we take their tonsils out as well. So they're the two main reasons. For speech disorders, definitely adenoids. Tonsils 
probably less commonly take them out for speech disorders, but we obviously still do. Yes, yes. Excellent. I think that's really given the listeners a wonderful way to understand tonsils, understand adenoids, and also to just get that extra detail on those common ear infections that do they're just so common in our kids. And if we understand them better and know what to look out for, we can intervene as we need to. So that's been fantastic. And I wonder, Justine, just to wrap things up, what would be your take-home message for parents and for professionals who might have some concerns about their child's ears or their hearing or their tonsils or their adenoids? What's your take-home message for us? Okay, so I suppose (laughs) the first thing is that if you're worried about your child's hearing, then you should definitely get it checked out because you're probably right. There is, there's probably going to be some issue. If you're worried about your child's speech, then definitely need to get it checked out. So if you've got some sort of, if you've got an feeling that there's something not quite right, early intervention plays a huge role. So trying to get them up to see um, your GP and get a referral to see an ENT surgeon is is critical um, because um, uh, we know that the earlier you intervene, the better the outcomes are. Um, In terms of ear infections, look, if they're getting three ear infections in six months or four or five in 12 months, you know that they really need to see someone about it because being on multiple courses of antibiotics is not good for them and um, having grommets really plays a huge role in improving their symptoms. Um, If you're worried about their hearing, they need a hearing test. Now, in terms of what type of hearing test they get, under six months, the hearing test is different to the hearing test that they get between six months and three years. Um, and, and then from three onwards, they actually get the same hearing test that an adult would get. Um, and so really, um, those hearing tests can be done a number of different places um, and um, trying to get in to, to see them, uh, you know, get a hearing test early is important yeah. um, because if significant hearing loss it will affect your child's ability to communicate um, and uh, really critical to try and address it as early as possible. Um, If you're worried about their sleep and snoring then um, also I think early intervention is important Um, and um, with speech um, there are a whole lot of they're huge um, you know huge amount of different types of speech disorders kids can have Um, but um, it's always critical to make sure that their hearing is okay um, uh, before um, uh, embarking um, on prolonged speech therapy. Do you agree with that Sonia? Yeah absolutely absolutely I think action is key um, and just following that gut instinct and we we get excellent outcomes um, you know, working on children's speech and language development nice and early and making sure that we are checking those fundamentals like hearing and in some cases, you know, other fundamentals, but hearing is always the primary one um, and the ears getting looked at. So, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Just one last thing. At what age would you start speech therapy? We can, we start seeing, oh, here's another, another topic, uh, just <laughs> we start seeing, we can, we personally, at, at, at Talking Heads at the clinic, we start seeing um, yeah. kids as young as babies because we work with feeding issues. Um, yeah. But certainly, you know, when first words haven't appeared um, between, you know, 12, 18 months, and sometimes we'll see them um, around that stage when they, they're not, you know, children are not engaging, they're not interacting, uh, they're not responding yeah. or they don't have any babbling. You know, sometimes we can see them that young. So, um, I guess the message is don't feel like you need to wait excessively. Sometimes people will call us and just say, look, this is what's happening. And, and 
we'll, we'll, we can ascertain sometimes whether they do need to come in or not um, just by yeah. understanding um, where they're at. Um, and for listeners on the Chat About Children website, there's actually a, a free checklist um, birth to six years that um, people can refer to um, very easily and just see what, where children are meant to be at at what stage to understand do I need to follow up um, so that's you know we're, we're quite happy to be resourceful in that way so that people can be as aware as possible to know when they might need to mm-hmm. take action it's not about yes. creating fear and worry it's about um, building education awareness and then empowering people to take action basically. Yeah, um, and I mean the only other thing I didn't we didn't talk about is that submucous cleft palate and things like that that can also affect kids' speech. Um, but I suppose that's another topic. Absolutely, absolutely. There's there's lots of scope for lots of topics, which uh, which is wonderful. It gives me lots to chat about, Justine. Um, and you have been amazing. You've really shared some very very valuable valuable information that I know that parents and professionals are out out there are going to get so much from, um, and hopefully take action sooner rather than later if they need to okay great well thank you so much for having me today um and uh look um look forward to um speaking to you soon thank you justine and that there was dr justine miller and no doubt you have learned a lot about your children's ears hearing and tonsils and certainly going to help you a great deal at home or in the workplace with children Coming up next episode, I've already mentioned it in the episode chatting to Dr. Miller, we will be talking about sleep and I will be talking to a sleep specialist in the next episode and I can tell you that I definitely learned a lot from my chat with him and I know that you too are going to be absolutely enlightened. There is a lot to get out of the next episode coming up so make sure that you tune in for that one. Please remember to subscribe to the Chat About Children podcast and to share this episode and the podcast with your friends, your family and your colleagues. If you can, I would love for you to leave a rating and a review. It helps me to understand where you're at, how you're finding the podcast and how to serve you better. Thank you. I celebrate you. Take care. Chat soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich, www.chataboutchildren.com.